before we get too far into our study of the book of Romans, there's something you need to know. Uh, Sarah and I were talking recently about how uh, the songs and hymns that people love the most are often the ones that were popular or significant at a time of significant spiritual growth in their life. Maybe when you were converted or maybe when you uh, first really started to, to grow in your faith. The songs that were popular then are probably the songs that you're going to, to love. And the same is true often of books of the Bible. That maybe when you were coming of age spiritually, there was a particular book of the Bible that came, became significant to you. So my, my pastor while I was in seminary, for him it was the book of Ephesians. He, I think... That was the first book, I believe, that he preached through um, when he was a, a young pastor. And several years later, uh, he said that he was still running off the spiritual energy he got from studying and preaching and teaching that book. For me, that book is Romans. So when I was in college and even into seminary, when I first started really studying the Bible and, and really started to grow um, as a Christian, John Piper was preaching at his church through the book of Romans. And um, at that time, he was putting his sermons online for free. Now, now, nowadays, everybody does that. But back then, that was a big deal, to be able to listen to another preacher online for free. And I listened to countless hours of him preaching verse by verse through the book of Romans. He preached 225 sermons on Romans. I didn't listen to all of them, but I listened to a lot of them. And uh, so when I, I mean, I, I can't hardly think about or teach or preach Romans without being influenced by his teaching. Uh, and around the same time, there, there's another pastor who uh, had gone to be with the Lord by that time, but Martin Lloyd-Jones also preached through the book of Romans at his church, and I got my hands on a copy of his sermon on Romans 3, 25, and 26. It was called The Vindication of God. And I still, I gave it away years ago, but I still remember what the cover looks like. And even now, when I preach or teach that passage of Scripture, I know I'm drawing on things that I learned from him in that sermon I read all those years ago. So, Maybe Romans is not the book that has most shaped you, but I want you to know this is the book that has probably most uh, profoundly shaped me. And it's not just because of those men preaching it, it's because of the powerful, life-changing uh, truths that we find in the book of Romans. So uh, I, I just want to confess up front that most of what I know about Romans, I learned from one of those two guys. Uh, Lloyd-Jones' sermons on Romans 1 were sitting on my desk this week. They're sitting on my bedside table, I think, right now. Um, I, I have been profoundly uh, shaped by those guys. And, um, and so I want to acknowledge my debt to them <laughs> as we get started. But also, also say that to say to you um, that I hope our study of this book, our preaching through this book, um, that, that this book will also shape you, that this book will also change you, transform you, that as we, as we dig into the deep uh, theological truths of the scripture that we find in the book of Romans, um, that, uh, that your heart and life will be shaped and changed uh, for the better as well, as I know mine was. So let's look together at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, 
And I'll read for us this morning verses uh, 8 through 15. Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The first thing Paul says there in verse 8 is that he is grateful for the faith of the church in Rome because their faith has been made known far and wide. But before we talk about their uh, what Piper called their famous faith, I want you to notice how Paul prays. Because here's the thing about Paul. When Paul introduced himself in verse 1, he wasn't really talking about himself as much as he was talking about the gospel. He said, Paul, an apostle, a servant of Christ Jesus, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God concerning his... He starts talking about Jesus, right? He's a man set apart by Jesus, set apart for Jesus, set apart to make known the good news about Jesus. And even when he prays, Paul can't hardly help but remind us of the gospel. Notice that he says, even when he says, he talks about thanking God, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Paul does not dare to come to God on his own, on his own merits, unaided, unmediated. Paul comes to God, even in prayer, through Jesus Christ. Because Paul's not holy like God is holy. Paul doesn't deserve to come into God's presence, even in prayer. Paul recognizes that he only has access to God because of what Christ has done. He only has access to the Father because of the sacrifice of the Son. And so even as Paul prays and gives thanks to God for the faith of the Roman church, He is reminding us of the gospel of God's grace in His Son. And and every time we pray, every time we pray, we have uh, an opportunity to be reminded of the gospel. That we we can't come to God on our own. Uh, We don't deserve to be in God's presence. That we are able to come because of Christ. Ephesians 2 talks about how it's because of the sacrifice of Christ that we've been reconciled to God. It's because of what Christ has done that we are able to, that we have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2 that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And guess what? We need that mediator. We need to come to God uh, through Christ. So even when we come to God in prayer, 
We know we're coming only because of what Jesus has done for us. Only because Jesus makes it possible for us to come to God in prayer. And then notice what he's thanking God for. Right? He's thanking God for their faith, which he says is proclaimed in all the world. Right? Meaning all the world that they knew about. Right? All, all the Roman Empire, more or less. He thanks God because their faith is proclaimed in all the world. So people have heard about the faith of the Christians in Rome. They've heard that there's a church in Rome, that there's a body of believers there who trust Jesus, who confess that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And that, that, uh, that news has been spreading, and Paul is thankful that people all around the world, people all throughout the Roman Empire, are hearing about the fact that this church in Rome exists. Right? That they believe that there are believers uh, in Rome. Now, why is that significant? Rome, of course, was the, the center of the Roman Empire, right? the capital city. Think about how encouraged you are or would be to know that there are faithful believers in Jesus meeting, worshiping, evangelizing in Washington, D.C. Right? You want people who love Jesus to be there, right? And to be influencing people and to be praying and to be sharing the gospel. And we want, at the heart of our nation, we want there to be a community of people worshiping Jesus. And when we hear about people like that, we're encouraged, right? Our faith is strengthened just by knowing that they're there. The same was true in Paul's day about the people in, in the Christians in Rome. Paul was glad to hear and others were glad to hear that there in the heart of this pagan empire were a people who believed that Jesus was Lord, who trusted in Him. And Paul's words here remind us that faith is not a small thing. It is not a small thing for there to be pockets of people who name the name of Jesus, who trust Him and worship Him. There might have been a day when you could take it for granted that there were lots of people around you who worshipped Jesus and believed in Jesus and, and wanted to follow what God said in the Bible, but that has eroded over the last several decades, right? We are learning again, I think, to appreciate how significant it is just to know that there are other brothers and sisters out there. Or that there are other Christians who are meeting just like we are right now. Who believe the same things that we do. Who confess the same truths that we do. Who worship the same Savior, the same Lord that we do. It was noteworthy in the first century for them to know that there were Christians in Rome and it is noteworthy for us to know that there are believers scattered not only all across the country but all around the world in places like Africa and China and South America. There are people all over the world who are worshiping Jesus just like we are. And that's something to give thanks for. That's something to be grateful for. So Paul's grateful, he's thankful for their faith that has become known far and wide. And then he tells us in particular what he is praying for the church at Rome. In verses 9 to 12. Right, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. There's the gospel again. right? Paul is saying, this is, this is what my whole life is about. That without ceasing, I mention you 
always in my prayers. So first Paul, he, he calls God as his witness because he really wants them to believe this. That this is not just niceties on Paul's part. You know, we know that sometimes when people say, uh, I'll be praying for you, they're just saying that because that's the thing you're supposed to say. But you also know that there are people in your life who they say it in a way that you know they mean it. You know they're going to pray for you when they say that. They're not just saying that to say it. And Paul says, I don't want you to think I'm just saying this because this is what I'm supposed to say. God is my witness. I pray for you guys all the time. All the time. I'm constantly mentioning you in my prayers. Which is significant because Paul's never even been to this church. He's got lots of churches to pray for. He's got lots of people to pray for. In one sense, it would be understandable if Paul just, you know, didn't think he had time to pray for the church at Rome. But he wants them to know that he is regularly, faithfully, consistently praying for them. And what is he praying? Verse 10, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul is praying earnestly for them, and one of the things that he's praying is that God would send him to Rome, that God would would make it possible that it would be God's will for him to go and visit the church in Rome. And he tells us later in verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So my absence from you is not for lack of desire. I've wanted to come to you, I've wanted to see you, I've wanted to visit you, but always something always gets in the way. Something always stops me, something always prevents me from coming. But I want you to know, I love you, I care for you, I pray for you, I've been, I've been desiring to see you for quite some time. It just hasn't worked out yet, so I'm praying that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And why does he want to come? Does he just want to see the sights? Just love to see Rome? Uh, heard good things about your church? I'd just like to kind of sit in the back and be a fly on the wall and see how things go? No, he wants to be a blessing to them. He wants to benefit them. He wants to serve them. Verse 11, he says, For I long to see you. This is not just an obligation. This is a desire. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift To strengthen you. In other words, I want to do something to contribute to your spiritual growth, to your well-being, to your strength in the faith. I want to, to lend my hand to the plow, as it were, and help and be a part of what God is doing there in Rome. And it makes sense that he would want to do that, right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. This is all all of the Roman Empire is his territory, so to speak. And this is the heart of the empire. This is the capital city. Naturally, Paul would want to have a hand in aiding that church in their growth and helping make them strong. So what is it that he wants to do? Well, he doesn't really say. He says he wants to to impart some spiritual gift to them, but it's not clear what that gift is. He He doesn't name it for us. Uh, Someone has suggested he he just means I want to show up and 
teach you. I mean, Paul clearly had a, a gift of teaching, and that's a gift that he could give to them by teaching them more of the gospel. That's part of what he's doing in this letter, right? As he's expounding the gospel for them, making it clearer to them. Uh, that may be all he means here, right? Uh, someone has even said maybe the gift is the gospel itself. I want to give you this great gift that God has given us, uh, which you know, right? But I want you to know more fully. Uh, some, something like that. We, we, we can't be sure. But he wants to strengthen them. He wants to see them. But then he says something very interesting in verse 12. He says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, Paul says, even though I'm an apostle, what I have in mind when I come to see you is not a a one-way exchange. I've got all the stuff to give and you just need to receive. He says, no, I'm hoping to receive from you. I'm hoping to be encouraged by you. I'm hoping that there will be mutual encouragement. This will be a two-way street. right? That I will be able to give something to you, and you will be able to give something to me. Now, if that's the case, when even an apostle is involved, then surely that is also the case for all the rest of us. Right? When we gather together, it doesn't matter if you're a Sunday school teacher or a preacher or what your role is in the church, that all of us have something to give to one another. It might be encouragement. Right? It might be uh, just a, a, a hug and a, and a word of comfort. Right? It might be something that you sing or something that you pray or something that is said that somebody else hears and thinks, that's exactly what I needed to hear this morning. I needed this person to pray that and to hear that, and my heart was encouraged by that. Or I needed, I needed this, uh, this uh, lesson in Sunday school. How, how many of you, if you're Sunday school teachers, how many times are you encouraged by the things that people in your class say? Right? It, it's not just the teacher who is giving the encouragement. It's often the people who are sitting in class who add something, and the teacher says, I never thought of that. I needed to hear that. I studied the lesson, but I missed that. We encourage one another through the things we say, through the things we sing, through the things we pray. Every time we gather together, whether we are aware of it or not, we are serving one another. We are encouraging one another. We are strengthening one another. Sometimes it's just your presence in the pew that we need. Right? Because it can feel lonely. Sometimes to be a believer, especially if maybe you're the only one in your family or you're the only one in your workplace who is a, is a believer. It's, you need to come to church and look around and listen and hear other people praising Jesus and see other people listening attentively to the word to be reminded, I am not alone. It's not just me. I'm surrounded by brothers and sisters who love the same Jesus I love, who believe the same gospel I believe, who worship the same God that I worship. Right? We mutually encourage one another. That's part of how God designed the church to work. So that's what Paul is praying for Rome. He wants to be there with them, encourage them, and be encouraged by them. But why, why this drive to go to Rome? I mean, if you read Paul's story in the book of Acts, and it's just really a condensed version even there of his story, 
Paul seems always to be on the move. He's always going somewhere else, doing something else, writing another letter, planting another church, investing in another life. Paul, why not just stay home for a while, right? Sit on the couch and take a break. Why you got to travel all over the place? Well, we don't have to wonder because he tells us. Verse 13, he said, we read this earlier, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Why does he want to come? In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. In other words, Paul wants to go to Rome because he wants to uh, get some fruit from the people in Rome. He wants to do ministry there and see results. He wants to see people strengthened in the faith. He wants to see people come to faith in Christ. Again, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. This is the heart of the Gentile world, the epicenter of the Roman Empire. He doesn't want to leave this area untouched by his ministry. Other people have been there, clearly, and preached the gospel. And Paul is thankful for and celebrating the work that has already been done. But he wants to contribute as well. He wants to put his oar in, as it were. He wants to reap some harvest among the people as Rome as he has among the rest of the Gentiles. And part of the reason why he's so driven to do this is because of verse 14. He owes a debt to all the Gentiles. And Paul's not leaving out the Jews. He brings them in in verse 16. He preaches to the Jews as well when he goes to the synagogue. But his main sphere is the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews. And he says, I owe the gospel to all of you. His calling as the apostles of the Gentiles, his being set apart for the gospel of God meetings, means he does not have the liberty of staying at home. And doing nothing. He does not have the liberty of, uh, of just relaxing and, and, and doing what's comfortable for him. He is driven by a debt that he owes to all people to reach them with the gospel. And he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. You need to know, I'm not just here for the cultured folks, the Greeks. I'm here for the barbarians too, the guys you, you guys don't like. right? You cultured folks don't like them, but I'm going to preach the gospel to them too. Yeah. I'm not just going to preach to the wise people. I'm also going to preach to the ones you count foolish. Everybody of every class, every stripe, every type, I owe the gospel to them all. I'm under obligation. There's nobody who's outside of the sphere of my ministry. Right? Nobody who we can say, no, we don't have to worry about them. We can forget about them. We can exclude them, just let them go their way. Paul says, I'm under obligation to everyone. And the reason why he says he owes the gospel to all is because the gospel is for all. It's still true today. That the gospel is for everyone, for every kind of person, no matter what your background, where you're from, what you've been through. It doesn't matter. The gospel is for everyone. And if there's some voice in your head saying, not you though, 
not you. That is the voice of the enemy and not the voice of God. The Bible is clear that the gospel is for all. No matter how great your sins, no matter how much of an outcast you might feel like you are, no matter how important you might think you are, the gospel is for all kinds of people, for all people. Jesus died to ransom people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He died to save people of every kind, from everywhere. The gospel is for you. So if you're not a Christian, don't believe the lie that this is not about you. This is about you. God has you here hearing this word because he wants you to repent of your sin and believe He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to be forgiven. That's why He sent Jesus. Turn to Him and trust Him and you will be forgiven and you'll be made right with God and you'll experience eternal life and you'll have the promise of eternal life with Him forever. The Gospel is for everyone. And then finally, verse 15. He says, So I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, there's something interesting about the way Paul says that. He does not say, I am eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Wait a minute. I thought he was writing to people who already knew the gospel. He's writing to Christians, right? He's writing to a church in Rome. Why does the church need the gospel? Why would Paul be eager To preach the gospel to them. Because the gospel is not just for unbelievers, though it is, it's also for believers. The gospel is not just what you hear once so you can respond and believe and then move on to other things. The gospel is what feeds and fuels our life as believers. I mean, the whole first half of the book of Romans is about the gospel. And Paul doesn't write those chapters to say, I know you guys have already got this, but you can sort of cut these parts out and and take them with you as you share the gospel. Do that, but that's not all that they're for. These chapters are for you, because even though you have already confessed Jesus as Lord, you've already believed in Him, you've already heard the gospel, you need to know the gospel better. You need to be reminded of the gospel regularly. Because being reminded of the gospel and growing in your understanding of the gospel is how you're going to grow in Christ. How you're going to become a stronger believer. How you're going to become more like Jesus. So Paul is not only eager to do evangelism, though he was very eager to do that. He's also eager to feed the church the gospel they've already believed. Because as we understand the gospel better... We become better equipped to fight temptation. We become better equipped to fight those doubts that creep in and, and try to weaken our faith. Right? We, we become more free as we more fully understand what God has done to forgive us of our sin and to make us right with God. There's always more of the gospel for us to learn and to hear and to grow in and to understand. That's part of why Paul wrote the book. He wants us to know and believe the gospel. So believer or unbeliever, this book is for you. This letter is for you. This 
gospel is for you. I pray that God writes these words on your heart and that you grow as you dig deeper into his word. Let's pray.